0: G'day everyone, and welcome to part two of the Battle of Capyong. Before we kick on, just a reminder that you can find maps and photos on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com, and you can check out our Facebook and Instagram pages. And if, like Josh, you have a topic you would like me to cover, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Josh has suggested a very interesting topic, one which I'd already planned, but which will hopefully now have an extra twist when we get to that part which should be somewhere around mid-year. Now let's crack on. Cast your mind back to the last episode. You remember that on a series of ridges in Korea in 1951, three RAR were at the pointy end of the Allied forces battling to hold off a renewed Chinese attack. Throughout the first night of the Chinese offensive, B Company had fought hard, but some were driven off their positions, only to retake their old line in the early morning. A Company had also had a tough night, but were still clinging to their bit of Korea come daylight. C and D companies had, by comparison, quite a night up in the hills. Down in the Kapyong Valley, Headquarters Company had also had a relatively quiet night. Not so Battalion Headquarters. Initially positioned to check the South Korean troops' retreat, they found themselves directly in the path of a rampaging Communist force. They fought hard, but eventually had little choice but to fall back to a more secure position. All in all, the Australians, with some assistance from American armour, had won the night on a points decision but they were in a precarious position. Sure, they had inflicted multiple times their own casualties upon the Chinese, but the Chinese were much better able to sustain their losses. As the sun was coming up on the 24th of April 1951, Battalion Headquarters only had basic communication with its forward companies. Those companies had been battered and the Chinese were far from done. After withdrawing from its position in the wee small hours, Battalion Headquarters set themselves up in the Middlesex perimeter. Ferguson and his staff set about re-establishing some sort of control over the situation. This was not as easy as it sounded. The phone lines to the companies had been cut and radio communication was still really in its infancy at that time. Combine all that with random Chinese units wandering around and Lieutenant Colonel Ferguson had his work cut out. Later in the morning, the Australians heard a bit of noise coming from the undergrowth in front of the HQ position. As they watched, a group of Chinese soldiers emerged with their hands up willingly offering themselves as prisoners. They looked just about done in, blackened from smoke and gesturing that they were hungry. A little bit suspicious, the Australians nonetheless gave them some rations, water and cigarettes, which the Chinese happily accepted. Turns out they were actually willingly surrendering. This was unusual because this was the first occasion in which a group of Chinese soldiers had surrendered to Australians. After that point, they had usually chosen to fight to the death or withdraw. But after that first night at Kapyong, many simply gave themselves up, exhausted and hungry. Back at Headquarters Company, remember that Battalion Headquarters and Headquarters Company are two different entities, Captain Gurky figured out that the sound of fighting in what he had thought was the Battalion Headquarters position had died down. He wasn't sure whether that meant HQ had withdrawn, they'd been overrun, or if they'd beaten off the attacks and were taking a well-earned breather. There was obviously still some fighting going on up in the hills, but he had no communication as to what had become of Headquarters which, as you can imagine, is probably not a comfortable feeling. On the one hand, if they had been overrun, then it was quite conceivable that Gurky himself may have to take command of the battalion. But if headquarters were still in the fight, then his responsibility was with his own company. So what do you do in that situation? Fortunately, his dilemma was soon put to bed when a jeep headed in his direction. The driver was from the battalion's mortar platoon, and he shouted out to Gurky, Bug out, sir, battalion headquarters is back down the road. Watch out for the gooks on the road, they hold the high ground. Now I realise that particular sentence isn't exactly PC, but it is the language of the soldiers at the time, and so I chose to be accurate rather than sensitive. I also included it because it contained two salient points. One, confirmation for Gurky that Battalion Headquarters had withdrawn, leaving Gurky in a precarious position. And two, the enemy held the high ground overlooking the road Gherky would need to use to pull his men out. On receiving the news, Gurky ordered an orderly withdrawal, one vehicle at a time. While each vehicle drove away, covering fire was given by those remaining. Eventually, all but one vehicle had left the scene. A five-ton truck carrying small arms and mortar ammunition just refused to start. With everyone else gone, the driver elected to stay with the vehicle to get it working again, which he managed, but much later in the day, and then he drove out. As for Gurky, he and private guest headed over to where the American water crew had bugged out during the night you remember from last episode that they departed in much haste and left everything behind. Gurky and Guest purloined one of their vehicles and a trailer and headed south after the rest of the company. They were fired on by the Chinese up in the high ground but were not hit. They picked up six other Australian soldiers who were making their way back on foot. So you can see by the actions of Gurky and Guest and the truck driver who stayed behind that it was a very calm and orderly withdrawal, not the panicked retreat that you would tend to associate with a position potentially overrun with enemy. When Gerke arrived with the last of headquarters company in the Middlesex area in the afternoon, he was ordered to take his men to secure a ford across the Kapyong River, about two kilometers east, because the rifle companies would be needing it for their withdrawal. Wait, their withdrawal, you ask? Well, yes. Although they still held the heights, they were not in a great position when dawn came along. Like a wave crashing into a headland, the Chinese may have been halted in that area but had flowed around the sides and now the companies were about 4 kilometers behind the front line. Not that this in itself was the problem. With proper supply lines for men, food and ammunition, and withdrawal routes for the wounded, they could have held that position for as long as it would take. But this wasn't the case. A company had suffered nearly 50 casualties overnight and were having severe difficulty in extracting the seriously wounded. They were running out of medical supplies, such as dressings, and had no spare blankets to keep the wounded warm. The Chinese were also starting to lob incendiary bombs into the area, starting spot fires which sometimes ran through the company positions. The wounded were sometimes further injured by burns. It was a fairly similar situation across all of the company areas. Ammunition, food and medical supplies were running low. If the Chinese decided to throw in a full-scale attack during the day or again that night, 3RAR would be overwhelmed by numbers with no ammunition to throw back at them. Ferguson decided, or at least realised, he had no other choice but to order B Company to fall back from its exposed position on the western flank to take up a position behind C Company. Captain Lachlan of B Company began his move at 7.15am. Before leaving, the Company counted 173 enemy dead around their perimeter and down in the valley. A patrol under Warrant Officer 2, Eric Bradley, had captured 39 prisoners between sunrise and receiving the order to withdraw. It must have been galling to have fought so hard during the night, and so successfully it would seem, only to have to abandon the position anyway. The Kiwi artillery provided a smoke screen to help B Company with the move. Six Platoon and four Platoon moved out first, then the machine gun section. Five Platoon held the rear guard until all the others had successfully arrived behind C Company, and then they followed. All were supported by a platoon of American tanks. Now that all sounds nice and tidy, doesn't it? And normally, when you read about these kinds of things, that's all you'll get. But the reality isn't so clear-cut and easy. You have to remember, they were still in contact with the Chinese. They were in an exposed position, and they had to get wounded out along with as much equipment as possible. There was smoke everywhere, the ground was uneven, and on more than a few occasions, the Chinese popped up on higher ground or in riverbeds and took a few shots at the B Company. This meant B Company would have to drop everything they were carrying and shoot back. They'd also taken prisoners who had to be kept under control and heading in the right direction, and they also picked up another eight seriously wounded Chinese soldiers who they were now responsible for under the Geneva Convention. That was far from a simple stroll from one area to another. Just after B Company had settled into their new digs behind C Company, a group of Chinese made a strong push against the top of the spur held by C Company. C Company dug in and fought off the assault, and while no further attacks came that day, Chinese snipers and mortars were very active. At 9.30 that morning, in one of those instances which makes the front-line soldier think their commanding officers had been smoking those funny cigarettes, B Company was ordered back to their old position. Turns out the brigade was to be reinforced by American troops, and that reinforcement would be made easier if the Chinese weren't inconveniently on top of the hill overlooking the road. It was also felt that removal of the Chinese from that position would make a flanking attack against the main 3 rar position impossible. No doubt praising his CO's military competence and forethought, Lachlan ordered his fire platoon under command of Lieutenant McGregor to clear the ground between C Company and the Chinese position in preparation for the rest of the company assaulting the summit. But the Chinese, having fought so hard and suffering so many casualties in order to take the position, were in no mood for giving it up so easily. McGregor ordered two sections forward at 10.30 with cover fire provided by his third section. The Chinese waited until the Australians were within 15 metres and then opened up with machine guns, rifles and grenades, inflicting seven casualties, including McGregor who was wounded in the face. He handed over control to Sergeant Fraser, who withdrew the two sections under the cover of the supporting fire. Lachlan then ordered four platoon to have a crack. Lieutenant Montgomery was in the process of organising his platoon when the welcome sight of some American armour came into view. With tanks offering the type of support which five Platoon had lacked, Montgomery led his troops forward. 30 metres out, the enemy fire intensified and Montgomery led a bayonet charge against the nearest trench. One section, under command of Corporal Davy, charged into the trench and fierce hand-to-hand fighting reminiscent of the trenches of World War I ensued. To the cost of three casualties, the trench was cleared of Chinese. The section then came under fire from the rear trenches and rather than sit tight and cop it, Davy got his section together and charged those trenches as well. At the same time, Montgomery reorganised the rest of the platoon and pushed on in support of Davy. The Chinese defended strongly, but were unable to halt the tide of Australians. So they hopped it. But they weren't done yet. Strong fire was directed at 4 platoon from another knoll to their front. Leaving one section behind to finish clearing the first position, Montgomery and Davies pushed on again for the second knoll. Some Chinese got up and ran, but most fought to the death. By 1230 the position had been taken, and 57 enemy dead were counted at the first position and another 24 at the second. The whole action had cost B Company three killed and nine wounded. Montgomery was awarded the Military Cross, while Davy received the Military Medal. But that was only the first round in the fighting that would be needed to reclaim B Company's old position. From the knolls they now occupied, Lachlan could see into his former position and saw that the Chinese held it in strength. But orders are orders, and so he prepared his company to carry out the order to retake the ground. Fortunately for B Company, Brigadier Burke had surveyed the situation during the morning and decided that 3RAR would move back to the Middlesex area. He understood that the battalion would be unable to repel another attack of the same magnitude of the previous night. An eminently sensible decision. but one, that could have saved B Company the trouble of capturing the Knolls if it had been made sooner. While B Company were doing their thing, Lieutenant Colonel Ferguson took a ride forward in one of the US 1 platoon tanks. The tank was responding to an urgent request for ammunition from the forward companies and Ferguson took the opportunity to hit a ride and check out the situation first hand. Ferguson took up position in the gun loader's seat. When the tank came under fire, Ferguson quickly learned how to keep ammunition flowing to the crew operating the gun. I can't imagine too many times in history when battalion commanders have become just another member of a tank crew. No casualties were received during this interlude, and Ferguson was on the hill just below his forward Companies by 11am. From that position he could see that the road south to the Middlesex position was dominated by Chinese. He accepted that 3 RAR wouldn't be able to withdraw down that road and so ordered the companies to withdraw along the ridge line running about 500 metres east of the Kapyong River. The Middlesex were a further kilometre past the foot of the ridge and could only be reached by crossing the ford, that one the Gerke had secured. In order to make sure the rear guard would have darkness to cover their withdrawal, Ferguson ordered B Company, the first to withdraw, to remain in place until mid-afternoon before pulling back. Ferguson then jumped back into the tank, which was by now full of wounded inside and also some riding on the outside. It's interesting to note that on the return journey, the Chinese didn't fire, even though the tanks made perfect targets. It appears the Chinese usually respected the Red Cross and refrained from firing on wounded men. However, when wounded were being loaded onto tanks in the A Company area, they were fired on by Chinese mortars. But chances are, the Chinese observers just didn't realise that they were firing on wounded men. For D Company, in their position in the Western Hills, the night of the 23rd and 24th of April had been relatively quiet. But during the morning of the 24th of April, they came under increasingly heavy attack. The D Company position was vital. They held the highest point in the ranges occupied by 3 RAR, and they were all that was protecting the battalion's right flank. If the Chinese took their position, 3 RAR would be in a lot of trouble. With the valley in Chinese hands, D Company held the only viable withdrawal route for the forward three companies. But, as I mentioned just now, the withdrawal wasn't to begin until mid-afternoon. That meant D Company had to hold that summit at all costs for at least nine hours to give the battalion any hope of extracting itself. The enemy attacks began at about 7am and were aimed mostly at 12 platoon. At roughly half-hour intervals, subsequent attacks were made until around 10.30. The steep slopes and narrow passes played into 12th Platoon's hands as the Chinese could only advance on a front of about 5-6 to six men supported by their comrades providing covering fire from behind. It was easy picking for a 12th Platoon, killing about 30 Chinese in the first 6 attacks for the loss of 7 wounded themselves. The gunners from New Zealand played an important role in supporting D Company as well, bringing in accurate fire to within 50 metres of their position. But the gunners had their own problems. While the fighting was going on to Yong, there was also fighting at the Imjin River and artillery ammunition was needed to support that defence as well. The shortage of ammunition meant they couldn't lay on a heavy continuous barrage, but rather had to wait until their forward observers identified specific targets, and then throw a few shells over and see what effect they had. The attackers paused for an hour from 10.30 to reorganise and reassess their tactics, and at 11.30 they came on again. And again they fell on 12th platoon. They inflicted heavy losses on the Chinese, but they kept on coming. It shouldn't be imagined that the Chinese were just charging mindlessly up a steep hill, hoping that eventually enough of them would have survived long enough to make it to the top. These were experienced troops, supported by mortars and machine guns, using what cover there was to work their way forward. It was only steadfast resistance from 12 platoon that managed to hold them off. At one hundred thirty there was another break in the fighting, this time for an hour and a half, although the mortar attacks continued. Captain Gravner decided that 12 platoon should be pulled back towards the centre of the company position. It turned out that the Chinese didn't notice 12th platoon's evacuation and continued to pound the now empty position. The bombardment was followed up by another full-scale assault in full view of D Company and like a boxer throwing a big haymaker into thin air the Chinese attack achieved nothing except bringing them under a tense machine gun and artillery fire. Gravner called in an airstrike and napalm canisters were dropped but they missed their mark and exploded near 10 platoon. Fires were started and the flames spread across the summit. More napalm was on its way, but the company 2IC, Captain Ryan, ran out under enemy fire to wave a marker panel to identify the Australian position to the incoming aircraft. An American tank commander in the valley also noticed the napalm had hit the wrong target and relayed a message through his own network to call off the attack. Two Australians were killed and seven wounded, but by far the most serious losses were in the ammunition and equipment destroyed by the fire. The company command radio was saved in the nick of time by Private Winson who was able to send vital messages to coordinate supporting fire throughout the withdrawal later in the afternoon. Without that radio, the withdrawal could have descended into chaos. Soon after the Napalm incident, at around 3.30pm, 3 RAR began its withdrawal, with B Company moving back first, followed by C, A and then D. It was concerned that the Chinese may have predicted the route and would be taking moves to cut the path. Unfortunately, Ferguson had to advise his company commanders that no Allied force would be coming forward to clear the path for them and so if there were any Chinese in the way, the company would have to fight their way through. O'Dowd, coordinating the movement from atop the ridges, decided the only way to get all four companies out safely was to move step by step with three companies holding positions while the fourth company moved. He hoped in this way to hold off the Chinese attacks, which he knew would be aimed at the rearmost sections, and then make a clean break. When Lachlan of B Company received his orders to move, he reminded O'Dowd of the 39 prisoners he had in his possession. O'Dowd told Lachlan that he would have to take them out with him. Lachlan wasn't too happy about that, because it meant that within his company, he had a potential enemy threat. He'd need to assign men to keep an eye on the prisoners, rather than fighting off the pursuing enemy. In the final wash-up, though, the prisoners were a blessing. They turned out to be very compliant, and provided valuable assistance in carrying out wounded soldiers. Funny how one day, you're trying to kill each other, and the next, you're risking your own neck to help carry out your enemy's wounded. Makes you realise how ludicrous war really is, doesn't it? As it turned out, O'Dowd's assumption that the Chinese may have blocked or at least covered the withdrawal route were not realised. Having broken contact with the enemy, B Company withdrew along the ridge with only a single shot being fired and reached the Middlesex perimeter just after dark. C Company began its withdrawal at 4.30pm. Unfortunately though, a Chinese sniper scored one last hit prior to their departure. But again, like B Company, Reg Saunders boys also made it to the Middlesex without further incident, as did A Company. D Company, on the other hand, being the rear guard, didn't have it quite so easy. The Chinese continued their attacks throughout the afternoon, and when it came time for D Company to move out, they couldn't. The Chinese threw in an especially strong assault just before D Company was about to move. Heavy machine gun and water fire preceded the charge, pinning D Company in place until the Chinese pushed up the hill in strength. The attack was once again repelled, but Gravener knew he had to get his company away before another assault could be mounted. With Templeton covering the position, The rest of D Company began to pull out. During the withdrawal, Private Gwither was left behind. In the confusion of withdrawing while fighting off probes, members of his platoon thought he was off helping a stretcher party. He was, in fact, buried in what had been his fighting pit, with only his head sticking out. A shell had burst near him, knocking him unconscious and collapsing the pit onto him. By the time he came to, he saw Chinese troops digging in and realised he was on his own. That's got to be a horrible feeling. The Chinese eventually noticed him, and he began a long period of captivity that would include escape attempts, torture, and beatings by North Korean troops, but relatively good treatment whenever in the hands of the Chinese. The battalion withdrawal was finally completed with excellent assistance from the New Zealand artillery. With the Chinese attempting to maintain close contact with the Australian rearguard, the Kiwis were dropping highly accurate fire only 50 metres behind the rearmost troops. In fact, the Aussies had such faith in their Australasian cousins that one member of D Company actually requested Gravner to order the fire to be brought in even closer. Captain Saunders of C Company watched this final act and wrote, As D Company evacuated their positions, Chinese troops were right behind them and many a Chinaman had a dead heat or a photo finish with a 25-pounder Kiwi shell. Sometimes the Chinaman won and sometimes only came second. After darkness had fallen, the Chinese did not move as quickly as the Australians and a clean break from pursuit was finally achieved. Not that this meant the Chinese had given up their pursuit, merely that D Company was able to put some distance between them and the Chinese. D and A Companies made their way to the crossing, although some men from A Company took a wrong turn and then had to double back to find the actual crossing point. The pursuing Chinese, as they came down the slope, suddenly found themselves exposed to the Canadians, remember them, from their positions in the heights on the other side of the valley. It was a fair range, but the Canadians opened fire and discouraged the Chinese a bit more. B Company, battered and bruised, but undefeated, held the enemy side of the crossing, while the remaining three companies crossed. C Company leading, then A Company, lest the blokes should take the wrong turn, and then D Company. Aware that there were still two platoons of A Company out there, Lieutenant Young, 2IC of B Company, waited as long as he dared, but soon had to order his own men to begin the crossing. As Young made his own way across the river, he saw two columns of troops approaching and recognised them as the missing platoons. By 11.30pm, the battalion reported in, with Ferguson waiting for each of them to pass to ensure they were all accounted for. When they had all arrived at their new company positions, they did what any self-respecting soldier would do in the circumstances. They fell into an exhausted sleep. As they woke up on the next day, 25th of April, Anzac Day, they weren't aware that they had actually stopped the Chinese advance in their sector. Together, the Australian Infantry and New Zealand Artillery had dealt out so much damage that the Chinese had decided not to continue. It had been a tough fight, which had cost three RAR, 32 killed and 59 wounded. Three were taken prisoner. Together, they had fought off wave after wave of attacks by superior Chinese numbers on the first night. They had spent the following day in a relatively exposed position, cut off from each other and under constant sniper and mortar fire. They had then conducted an almost textbook withdrawal while in contact with the enemy. Of Lieutenant Colonel Ferguson, it was said, Bravery was routine to him. His battle knowledge and execution was superb. And his unit must have been a reflection of him, his officers and non-commissioned officers. I observed him personally on our forays into and out of the area of the encircled Australian soldiers, during which time Colonel Ferguson was calm, acted like he was in total command of the situation and that his organisation would triumph. He demonstrated great concern for his wounded and his encircled men and had no apparent regard for his own personal safety. He exposed himself to enemy fire by getting out of the tank, speaking to the wounded, and walking among his troops as if it was just a practice drill back in Australia. End quote. Ferguson received the Distinguished Service Order for his outstanding leadership throughout the Battle of Capyong. But the Australian withdrawal didn't mean the end of the battle. As 3RAR was in the final stages of their withdrawal, the Chinese switched the point of their attack to the Canadians on Hill 677 in the west. The Chinese hit the Canadians just as hard as they had the Australians. The New Zealand artillery provided support to the Canadians, and the fighting went on throughout the day and into the night. By the next morning, the Canadians was in a similar position to that which 3RR had faced. They were still in possession of the high ground, but were low on ammunition and medical supplies. Airdrops replenished their ammunition supplies to some degree on the 25th, and no further concerted attacks were made by the Chinese. Between them, the Australians, Canadians and New Zealanders, with assistance from a company of American tanks, had broken the offensive effort of an entire Chinese division. Within a few days, General Van Fleet was making preparations for the 8th Army to advance into the ground lost in the opening phases of the Chinese offensive. Three RAR and 2nd Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry were awarded the US Presidential Unit Citation for their actions, while the Kiwis were awarded the South Korean Presidential Citation. If it had happened in any other war, the defensive action at Kapyong would be celebrated as an astounding victory alongside Amiens in 1918, Tobruk or Long Tan. But the Korean War isn't known as the Forgotten War for nothing, and this incredible fight became a forgotten battle in that Forgotten War. The battle, and the men who fought it, deserve to be remembered.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.